Morning, Bethel. Well, um, there's not a single text for our uh, message this morning, our study uh, of Scripture this morning, Um, but you're going to need to have your fingers ready because we're going to be looking at um, a good handful of of different texts. Um, If you've been here for any length of time, uh, you know that exposition of biblical texts, um, usually sequentially through a particular book like Luke, which is what we've been in for a while, um, is our normal and our steady diet. Um, There's lots of good reasons for that. Um, Just give you one. When the normal diet is a sequential expositional approach to books of the Bible, then the text sets the agenda week after week. Okay, that's a good thing. God setting the agenda. I'm not up here, you know, rocking on my hobby horse um, or horses. Uh, we don't skip hard texts or initially unclear texts. Um, the text itself, like I said, is setting the agenda. The goal of exposition is the faithful representation of a particular text of Scripture because the power is not in my creativity or in my opinions, which are going to die with me soon. Okay, the Word of God is living and active and it's enduring. Okay, so not me, not any cheesy alliteration that I might be able to come up with. That's not where the power is. Okay, not me or any emotionally manipulative stories that I might be able to tell, although stories are appropriate and helpful as illustrations of truth. So the Word of God is the powerful, life-giving source of truth. So that is our normal, our steady diet. It will continue to be as long as I'm here. Okay? There also is an appropriate, though less frequent, place for topical or thematic studies. Okay? So for instance, um, a couple, I don't know, maybe two years ago, did a four-part series on the attributes of God. Now we had, I think, in each case, probably a uh, central text. But if you want to talk about the triunity of God or the self-sufficiency of God or the holiness of God, um, I think those were three of the four, you want to see what the whole Bible reveals about those beautiful facets of the manifold perfections of the glory of our God. So you want to see Lots of different places where these things are revealed and unfolded. And so there's an appropriate place for things like that. We've done a few other series along those same lines over the last three years. But this morning, we're going to take a week out of Luke. Next week, we're also going to have a shorter message that is on Numbers. I believe this or not. A shorter message on Numbers 11 to 14. Okay. That's a big hunk of scripture. Um, But we have three baptisms and communion next Sunday. So um, we're not going to continue in Luke. We'll pick that up 18 after next week. But I'm going to really work hard at it being a shorter exposition of a bigger text. Um, So, but this morning we're going to consider two biblical themes that fall under the broader banner of citizenship. Okay, so the title, if you saw it in the bulletin, is Dual Citizenship. Okay, if, if some of you haven't noticed, there is an election that's coming up in about nine days. Okay, and at one level, it's kind of a big deal. The outcomes will have significant impact on the next four years. 
as we start to consider this this morning, how have you reacted to all of the hype and the issues and the happenings? What, what have been your reactions? Have you reacted with excitement? Maybe not. Disillusionment? Maybe. Indifference? Cynicism? Anger? Fear? Are you an obsessive news junkie? Are you tired of all the talking heads? Okay, it, at, at times like this in election season, certainly, and certainly at this point in our nation's history, it's pretty easy to veer off the path into a ditch on one side or a ditch on the other. What I mean by that is this. It's easy for some to get too caught up in it all and lose sight of the path. It's also easy for others to get disillusioned or cynical and lose sight of the path disengaged. Some of you might hear that, you know, I'm, I'm addressing issues of citizenship as we approach another presidential election. You might be saying, well, it's about time. Church needs to speak up more, do more to take America back, bring her back to the vision of the founding fathers. Okay, some of what I say this morning may encourage you. Some of it may challenge your cherished assumptions. Some of you hear that I'm taking a week out away from Luke to address citizens of issues of citizenship. You might think that this is, you know, some political get out there and vote or here's how to vote message. It's not that. Okay, that's not the point. It's not a voting message per se. You can check the blog for some thoughts about voting. Um, the issues of Christian citizenship, dual citizenship, city of God, city of man are so much bigger than voting. And they always apply, not just in an election season. So it's certainly appropriate to consider them right now because everybody's maybe sensitive to these issues, but they're always necessary. So hopefully this serves us not just right now, but ongoing. So if you're in that camp, what are we taking? We've got to look to just talk about this. Okay. Some of what I say actually might encourage you. <laughs> well, partially, mainly, because it's going to be reflecting texts, what God has to say on the issue. But also, some of it might actually challenge some of your cherished assumptions. You may need to consider more carefully what the Bible says about citizenship in both senses. Okay? Not going to be surprised if there's some pushback on this one. If this morning messes with your categories, it might be a good thing. Dissonance and struggle oftentimes advance us along the path to clearer, truer knowledge. They force us to deal with things and wrestle through with God's truth to clarity and understanding. Uh, I know that not very many of the groups are meeting tonight, maybe even less by the time you know, 4.30 rolls around. I don't know. But originally it was going to be a home group night. That's a good context to wrestle some of these things through and continue to wrestle these things through together. I'm not going to answer every question. I'm probably not going to answer most of the questions that you're asking. And partially because we focus on the wrong questions. It's not that those questions aren't important. It's just they're not the main ones. Sometimes we assume the main things. And we focus on a lot of individual issues and decisions. And I think... That's why we're ill-equipped to handle them because we've assumed so many of the foundational central things. So we're going to actually focus there. 
And if you're wanting answers to a lot of specific questions, this may be dissatisfying to you. So I'm just going to give you that right up front and say, please don't so be interested in something. It's like the will of God discussion. Oh, what's God's will for my life? 95% of the time we mean his directional will in my circumstantial immediate future. The Bible doesn't answer those questions directly. What, what car to buy or who to date or what house to buy or whatever. 95% of your life is revealed as far as the will of God is concerned. Love God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on and on and on and on. It's all revealed. But we focus on the 5%. And, oh, yeah, I know the 95%. Really? Same thing with these issues. We can focus on a small percentage of specific details. What, what, about, what about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What, what do we think about being citizens of heaven? What are the implications of that? What does it mean to be a Christian citizen in the city of man? Let's really wrestle with the word on those things because that's where 95% of this stuff is. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Um, another implication of focusing this way is one of the questions we often have is what is the appropriate nature or level of political engagement and activism as a Christian? I can't answer that question for you. (laughs) Some might be called or feel called to some level of activism. It doesn't mean that we all must engage in the same way. Some might be called to public office, but certainly not all of us will be. Okay, we're going to focus on the good citizen engagement, city of God, city of man, the stuff that you don't necessarily have to wonder about. This is engagement that is clearly our responsibility because it's from God. So it's a call, this morning is a call in the midst of the insanity of election season, in the face of some interesting days in our nation. It's a call away from the talking heads and all the incessant political opinions to the only voice that ultimately matters. The voice that says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The voice of, Daniel 2, he who changes the times and the epochs, who removes kings and establishes kings. So let's humbly sit at his feet. We get the opportunity to sit at his feet. He's got so much to say to us as we wrestle wrestle with the issues of citizenship in his kingdom primarily, first and foremost, finally, and as citizens under the sun on earth in this nation at this time. So much to say. So let's pray and ask God to give us ears to hear as we consider his word this morning. Oh God, you are our king. (laughs) And we are so glad that our king is our father and that the king that we have all rebelled against, that we have snubbed and spurned and whose name we have profaned 
The one who rightfully could judge and condemn and banish us forever is the same king who sent his son to take on flesh and become a servant and a slave, even to the point of death on a cross, so that the gospel of peace could be proclaimed to us rebels. The gospel of the kingdom would be a gospel of peace to us, that we would actually have opportunity to throw down our weapons of rebellion and join your kingdom, be transferred by your grace, by you, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption. So we praise you for your gospel grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the kingdom that is our only hope and is our always and forever hope, our living hope that nothing can kill on this earth. None of the political ebbs and flows, none of the ups and downs, no matter how good or bad it is, this living hope is always our truest and eternal and only ultimate hope. And it's always, always alive. So please, Lord, orient us this morning to our citizenship in heaven that is untouchable and that is so sweet and has so many implications for how we conduct ourselves on this earth through our brief vapor-like pilgrimage. And Lord, we are citizens of an earthly kingdom and you are not silent on that. We thank you that you give us clear commands and help and wisdom for how to conduct ourselves as your citizens, as your people, as a holy nation inside any nation. So please give us clarity. Shed light on the path. Give us attentiveness to you and to your word and give us wisdom to wisely, humbly live out, navigate the path of our dual citizenship by your grace, through faith in Jesus until he returns. And your kingdom comes in its fullness and in its consummation. I pray that we would look forward to that day. I pray that we would seek first your kingdom. I pray that we would welcome your rule in our lives now and that through us your kingdom would come now until it comes finally. So use this brief time right now to shape us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points. The first two are extensive. The last one is shorter. <laughs> okay. So in the bulletin, again, dual citizenship. One, Christians are citizens of the city of God.
Two Christians are citizens of the city of man. I'm using Augustine's terms, city of God, city of man, okay? We hold dual citizenship. And then finally, we'll consider just our posture in light of what we've considered on these two aspects of our citizenship. And that's the brief point number three. So Christians hold dual citizenship. It's not hard to see. There's going to be tension. There's going to be paradox. There's going to be need for wisdom in navigating the challenges of putting those two things together. Okay, even the U.S. State Department understands this. If you look up dual nationality or dual citizenship, it says this. The concept of dual nationality means that a person is a citizen of two countries at the same time. The U.S. government recognizes that dual nationality exists, but it does not encourage it as a matter of policy because of the problems it may cause. Claims of other countries on dual national U.S. citizens may conflict with U.S. law, and dual nationality may limit U.S. government efforts to assist citizens abroad. The country where a dual national is located generally has a stronger claim to that person's allegiance. However, dual nationals owe allegiance to both the United States and the foreign country. They are required to obey the laws of both countries. Either country has the right to enforce its laws, particularly if the person later travels there. Okay, so, hmm. (laughs) Again, that just, we can see how obedience to laws and issues of allegiance will arise. Thus, the need to think clearly about the nature of our heavenly citizenship and think clearly about the nature of our earthly citizenship. So first, our heavenly citizenship. Here's how we're going to say it. As Christians, we are first and foremost and finally citizens of heaven. Okay, we're going to look at, like I said, quite a few texts this morning. Some I'm going to encourage you to turn to. Some I'm going to encourage you just to listen, maybe write down the reference for further future reflection, whether it's this afternoon or down the road. Citizenship in heaven. This is not my language. This is Bible language. Okay, so in Philippians 3, why don't you turn there? Philippians 3, if you're using... The Pew Bible is found on page 1177. We're going to look at verses 17. This is briefly, we're just going to touch on it. I just want you to see that this language is Bible language. Paul writing to the Philippians. Roman citizenship was a big deal for people in Philippi. So this was... Hot topic for them. There's more to be said in the book of Philippians. Actually, we touched on it way back when, when we walked through the book of Philippians. But um, I just want you to see verse 20, basically, in context. So 317, brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, as opposed to those whose glory will be their shame, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all all things to himself. So our citizenship is not first and foremost or finally citizenship in America. 
we are not first or foremost or finally Americans. We are first and foremost and finally Christians. Listen to 2 Peter 3. Okay, just I'm going to do it quickly here. 2 Peter 3, you can write down the reference, 10 to 13. Actually, the whole chapter is helpful along these lines. So the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Heavens are going to pass away. The earth is going to be burned up as we know it. Since all these things are going to be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought we to be? Holy conduct and godliness, looking for, hastening the coming of the day of God. But according to his promise, verse 13, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our home. We are first and foremost and finally citizens of the new heavens and new earth that is coming. We should be looking for that, longing for home, for his kingdom to come in its fullness. The writer to the Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Several texts along these lines here. And I hope, hope that these texts land with weight now. Don't think that the real you know, weight of this message is in some comments after the fact. Let the weight of the texts land on you as we walk through these. And then write down the reference so that you can let that weight land on you again the next time you work through these texts. So the writer of Hebrews calls it the city with foundations. That's our home, whose architect and builder is God. Look at chapter 11, verse 9. And just look at this language. This is so helpful to orient us to what living by faith looks like. If we are Christians, we live by faith, not by sight. This is normal. This is every day. Abraham is an example. Verse 9, by faith he lived, Abraham, as an alien. Watch this. In the land of promise. Wait a second. Wasn't that the goal? Abraham is living as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land dwelling in temporary dwellings, tents, with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Because he was looking for the city which has foundations. He knew that even the land promise was ultimately not fulfilled with that land he was living in. At that time, he's looking for the city which, with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Look down to verse 13. Grabbing more than just Abraham's example thus far in Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country or a homeland of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better homeland, a better country. That is a heavenly one. Do you see? Our citizenship, first, foremost, finally, is in heaven. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Who's them? The ones that want it. The ones that are looking for it. The ones that desire it. Okay? Or flip ahead. Actually, don't just listen. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, is our city. For here we have no lasting city. And so we are... Is this part of our self-conscious identity as people walking through this world? We're aliens. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We are not of this world. Okay, are you focusing on that reality during this election season and regularly? Is it your conscious self-identity and orientation? Okay, do you know that we as Christians actually are a nation? Did you catch it when Todd read it this morning? Turn to 1 Peter 2. You're pretty close in Hebrews, so go a little to the right. 1 Peter 2 on page 1212. Now Peter's quoting the Old Testament, but he's applying it to Jews and Gentiles alike that are scattered all over the place. They're elect exiles, like he says in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. Not light. We're a holy nation. We are members of the kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom is not and never will be defined by geopolitical boundaries. God is our king, and so our first and our foremost and our final allegiance is to his government, his kingship. And there's all kinds of implications to that. For Christians, we are necessarily international because of that. We are necessarily transcultural and multicultural. Okay, the kingdom of God, God our king is our first and foremost and final allegiance. This is our identity, our deepest, truest, most enduring identity. Have you ever noticed the crazy thing the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9? He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew to win the Jews. Paul, hello, you are a Jew. I am so much foundationally, primarily, ultimately a Christian. That is my identity as a new creation in Christ. That I will become as a Jew to win the Jews. Just like I can. There's that adaptability, certainly not compromise, but adaptability, flexibility. Because this this holy nation, this chosen race status is deeper than anything else. So, Christians are citizens of heaven. And as such, texts like Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That, that's so important every day, all the time with these issues. Well, what do you do about this? What do you do about this? Okay, we can talk about those things. We need to talk about those things. But 
Are, are you living in Romans 12, 1 to 2? You've got your eyes on the mercies. You're so focused on the gospel, and you're not wanting to take your cues from the world and be conformed to this world, but you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is in this particular situation. We dare not just assume these things and then, oh, we've got to figure out all this political stuff. Okay, yeah, good questions, but we dare not assume this stuff. We need to study it and pray it down deep into our being. 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. So it's all over the place. And actually, that citizenship, that reality, that grace, when our citizenship is firmly planted in heaven, that's actually what frees us and empowers us and helps us to be the best citizens that we can be in this earthly kingdom. Because you know what happens? It, it actually frees us to, to fight for the rights and justice of others because we're safe. We're not selfishly trying to save our lives and protect our rights primarily. Okay, we're able to give thanks in all circumstances. We're able to love our enemies. We're able to not complain and argue. Philippians 2, rejoice in the Lord always. How can you do that unless your mind is set on things above? So we are, as the church, to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. Already but not yet. Okay, one of the questions of the Bible is, who represents heaven on earth? Who speaks for God? Who speaks for heaven? In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. The prophets spoke for God. In the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, who represents heaven on earth? Jesus does. Listen to him. And then he dies. He lives and he dies to create a new people, this holy nation, Rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, sends his spirit to dwell in us individually and as a whole. And the church, not a nation, is the representative of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God belongs to those who, with childlike faith, acknowledge that cosmic rebellion and sin and they mourn over their sin. They're poor in spirit like the ladies studied this weekend at the retreat. Beatitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they. They're the members of this new people, this holy nation. So the, city, the church is like a city of God embassy on the foreign soil of the city of man. So we are foreigners. We're refugees. We're displaced. We're pilgrims. Again, same, t same text Todd read that says we're a holy nation. It also says, this is an implication of the, the fact that we're a holy nation. Beloved, I urge you, verse 11, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Okay, so it should not be surprising if our expectations and our values and our hopes and goals and dreams are radically countercultural and different from the world around us. We're not of this world, just like Jesus. And his kingdom was not of this world. Like he prayed to his father in John 17. He said, 
I've given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, John 17, 14 to 18, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so they're not of the world, but just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. It's great both and of the nature of our citizenship. So our citizenship is first and foremost and finally in heaven. As such, Peter exhorts us in this book that has so many helpful things to say along these lines to us aliens and strangers, us elect exiles. 113 says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You think that might help us as we wrestle with the issues of life under the sun, fallen world, troubled, you know, nation? Fix your hope completely, citizens of heaven, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Okay? But all of this does not mean that we're not citizens here on earth. We are. Okay? Our citizenship in heaven does not lead us to disengage and go live on the mountain waiting in white robes for Jesus to return. Our king actually commands us to submit to earthly kings, to governing authorities. Our king commands us to be salt and light in this world. Our king actually sends us into this world that's filled with rebellion to his kingship. He sends us into this world to love like he loved when he was on earth. So as Christians, we are citizens of the city of man. And for all, almost all of us, I guess, maybe, that means we're citizens of the United States of America. Okay, so point number two, Christians are citizens of the city of man. What is the nature of our citizenship in the city of man? I think that we need to wrestle with something first before we directly answer that question. Because here's, here's a question that I think needs more clarity. Maybe for some of you this is very clear. Even if it is clear for you, you need to be able to clearly represent who we are out there because there's a lot of misunderstanding. What does it mean for us to be Christians in the United States of America? What are we after? Okay, so here's the question. It's going to be a little bit, this might bother some of you. I don't know. Just listen. Hear me out here. Is America a Christian nation? Okay, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is often quoted by Christians and applied in the American political realm. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Can we apply that text directly to the United States of America? Is America a Christian nation? No. Has it ever been? No. Here's what I mean by that, okay? If you ask Thomas Jefferson, 
or Ben Franklin, just to pick two. Ben Franklin did not believe that Jesus was God. Is this a Christian nation you are founding? They would say no. There's religious language in the founding documents to be sure. But there was already at that time a plurality of religions present such that an explicitly evangelical or Protestant statement would not have united the assembly, would have alienated, irritated some of the others involved. Okay, so listen, mainly our founders would have been comfortable with deism, belief in a God, the creator God, Okay, but most of the founding fathers avoided Trinitarian evangelical Christianity as far as clear association. Now, I, some of you are going to disagree with me on that. Okay, We can talk history. And my point here is not so much a history lesson. Okay, We'll get to the bottom line of this. Has America become secularized? Absolutely. Regrettably. Wouldn't deny it for a moment. But was it Christian in the gospel of Jesus Christ, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone sense? No. In fact, freedom of religion was a high value. So that kind of tolerance, to be sure, comes from a Christian worldview. But it obviously establishes a trajectory that actually works against America becoming a Christian nation. So here, this is kind of where I'm moving with this. Exaggeration, hyperbole, spin, propaganda. We sniff it out in those whose views we oppose, right? It bugs us. We cry foul. All that spin over there on the other side. But are those with whom you agree guilty of it? And are you and I guilty of it? At times. If so, it's not okay. It's not okay to exaggerate for the sake of the point. It's just cherry picking historically is not okay for the sake of the point. Even if the stand you're taking is one for biblical righteousness, it actually weakens our voice, okay? When we give way to that, we don't end up with progress on the issues. We end up, one, just feeding the frenzy of those who already, dis who already agree with us. And we don't gain a serious hearing with those who disagree or a serious hearing with those who are on the fence and actually wrestling with how to process and understand the issues. Okay, so we are prone to exaggerate the history to prove our point, to underline our point in the present. in a sense, to kind of raise the volume of our point. But we end up shooting ourselves in the foot, at least among those who are students of history. Okay, so exaggerating claims are not honest. They're, they can be manipulative. And it actually weakens the force of true claims that are embedded within the embellishment of the exaggerations. Okay, so righteousness. Can it, does it exalt a nation? Absolutely. Proverbs 14.34 is true proverbially speaking. And there were, to be sure, some righteous men involved in the founding of our nation. But the exaltation of a nation does not mean that a nation can equate herself with the nation of Israel. Okay? And let's also not conveniently forget some of the unrighteousness that marked our nation's founding. This is some of the stuff that we just, we, we just, oh, we're not going to bring that into the equation. Is slavery and slave ownership righteousness? No. 
is the early treatment of Native Americans an, exposition, ex, an expression of, of righteousness? No. Okay, now, I don't know how you're reacting to all this, but I, I'm a patriot, okay? I believe Christians can be patriotic to the glory of God. Not a cheap armchair critic and cynic, okay? That, that kind of stuff is cheap. I'm deeply grateful. I think we should be deeply grateful for our country, its freedoms and blessings, and I am increasingly, personally, increasingly, increasingly grateful, humbled by all the blood that was shed for our freedoms and blessings. The anti-American sentiments, especially from the young, including in the church, that's not honorable. So much of it is just cheap criticism and cynicism. And it's so easily made by so many precisely because of the blood that was spilled to make it possible to say it. So, did Christian principles influence our nation's founders? Of course. What a rich blessing. Were some of our founders evangelical Christians? Yes. Maybe not as many as some would want you to believe, but yes, and praise God. Does that mean that most Americans are or ever were Christians? No. Does that mean that we could ever or can ever claim promises that were given to the theocracy of the nation of Israel as our own here in America? No. So it is actually historically, theologically, practically problematic to call America a Christian nation. 2 Chronicles 7.14 has a context. Okay, we cannot identify our land with the land in that text. There are no specific promises like that for any nation state. Though it's true that we should repent, that God's people should repent. Though it's possible that God could pour out his favor on this nation, and we pray that he will. But this promise is not an unqualified promise for any Christians in any nation in any age. Okay, same thing with Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, who do these promises belong to? America? Here's one of the things that just blows a hole in this. This is really important to remember. Does 2 Chronicles 7.14 and Jeremiah 29.11, do those apply to Christians in China? Do they, don't, don't, doesn't it belong to those Christians in China? There can be a terrible ethnocentricity, a America is the center of God's plan in the world sort of posture here that we need to avoid. Does it belong to Christians in North Korea, Christians in Indonesia? Well, yes and no, in the same way that it is yes and no for us. We can't co-opt this and relate that future and hope to the American dream. We do have a future and a hope. It's called the living hope, and it's the new heavens and the new earth, just like for those Christians in China just like for those Christians in Saudi Arabia. But we can't say that that's a promise for the nation of America. So, this has impact on how we view our citizenship as Christians in this nation, citizens of the city of man. Okay, We need to resist identifying the gospel with a particular party or nation. That could be qualified a lot. We'll not take the time for it. Okay, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. I'm not trying to provo- I am wanting, you to, prov- wanting to provoke you to think. 
okay, so that we can have clarity on issues that affect us greatly, helping us to wrestle with the word, what is the nature of our heavenly citizenship? What is the nature of our earthly citizenship? What does it look like to be a good citizen, Christian citizen in the United States of America? What's that look like? Strangely enough, a good place to start is Jeremiah 29. Not verse 11. Let's go back a little bit. This is an amazing text. Please turn there. Jeremiah 29. Starting in verse 1. Notice what this is. These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet, who's obviously speaking for God, sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so... God has a word for the exiles who are displaced. The letter is sent to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at that in verse 3, king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? God wanted the king to know what the posture of his people in his kingdom ought to be. Isn't that interesting? God wanted the earthly king the non-Israelite king, to know what he was saying to his people who were residing in Nebuchadnezzar's land. That's pretty instructive. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, whom I have sent into exile. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know who the real king is here. From Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is what God says to his people who are in exile. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. We are elect exiles. First Peter makes it clear. This is very appropriate for us. Citizens of heaven who are looking forward to our real home, new heavens and new earth, while we're displaced, this is really appropriate. We should seek the welfare of the city. What's city man citizenship look like? Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. We ought, Christians ought to be the best citizens. <clears throat> Love of neighbor ought to be this driving motive, not fear of losing rights and protections. Although there is a time and place for in our particular political system for fighting for rights and protections. Okay. But just note something. Maybe it's in your own heart. At least you've got to sense it in some of the language out there. Oftentimes people who are speaking um, as Christians in the public 
um, square, it seems like a lot of the rhetoric is driven by fear. It's even selfish fear. We're afraid of where we're headed, and some of that fear is justified in a sense, okay? What it will mean for rights and freedoms, okay, that's not all bad, especially where injustice is replacing justice and righteousness, okay? But who is it we're most concerned about? Are we concerned about saving our own skin and our own comfort? Or is it the good of our neighbors and society as a whole? Are we really concerned about the welfare of the city? Or are we simply concerned about the threats to our comfort and peace? We can't be driven by by fear. What are we after? We can't baptize the desires for power and comfort with religious language. Can't baptize, save our life impulses with religiously political rhetoric. Okay, so what does this citizenship look like? I want you to just, we're going to just read through a little handful of key texts. So again, make sure you write down the references. This is stuff to soak in. Um, we don't have time to make common on all of these, but these are huge. This is huge. Okay, so save turning to Matthew 5, but you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Okay, you also familiar? We're going to get there eventually. Luke 20. It's, it's paralleled in Matthew 22, Mark 12. The whole give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That's got massive implications, that statement. In fact, I'm going to put it up on the blog so that you can go and listen to it. Mark Dever did a message from Mark 12 on that text, and it is so helpful. And he's on Capitol Hill, okay? So he's got, you know, he's probably thought about these things a little bit, okay? I know he has, because I've listened to it twice, and it's, it's excellent. Once a while back, and once just recently again because of this. So what does it look like? A few key texts. Romans 13. It looks like submission. How much is that on the radar? I I want to seek the welfare of the city. I want to be a good citizen of heaven on earth. Dual citizenship. And so I know I need to live Romans 13. Lord, give me grace to live Romans 13. Turn there, please. Romans 13. This is not a small thing. This is a big part of what this looks like. Just listen to these words. There's so much packed in here. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Okay? And this is not like, Paul's not dealing with a, a situation where the, the rulers were just wonderfully godly. So, so this is not like, oh, come on, pie in the sky here. If you knew our situation, um, why don't you read some history of, of what politics was like in the first century? Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. We want to push back on that. Generally true. Wait a second. No, this was not, this was not like godly leaders, and Paul's still saying this. 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So the guy was beaten a lot. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. And some of this was very unjust. There was exploitation happening. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It looks like submission. You actually don't have to always obey There is a place for civil disobedience, okay, Acts 5. But you're always called to have a submissive disposition. It looks like prayer. We won't go there for the sake of time, but 1 Timothy 2, I urge you, entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We know that. Are we doing it? Oh, yeah, we're supposed to pray. What if we could just do this like automatic special poll, like boom, everybody's, how much each of you has prayed for governing authorities over the last six months just went up in a bubble above your head? I think we might need to just say, okay, yeah, I've got a lot of questions and you're kicking up some stuff here that, but maybe I do need to just kind of listen to a few of these texts and, and apply the main things even if I still need to wrestle with some other stuff that are, you know, good questions. But I can't dismiss this. Oh, I know you're supposed to pray. I want to know about this. And then the first Peter text, too, that that Todd read from. So much in there. So much in there. In that text, it looks like holiness. It looks like excellent behavior. It looks like submission again. It looks like doing right. It looks like using your freedom to serve God and Honoring all people. Honoring the king. Honoring. (laughs) And that king, at the time that Paul penned those words, was not particularly honorable a lot of the time. Keep your behavior excellent. You can read that text and then look at, look at how it ends. That's why we, we chose the whole section there down to 25 because the example of Jesus and the gospel actually drives and empowers and is the example for us as we seek to live these things out. Okay, so we dare not listen to these texts and say, yeah, but what do I need to do here and here and here? I can't prescribe what it looks like for each of you, Okay. And, and by the way, I hope and pray that God will raise up some William Wilbur forces in our church and in our nation. Okay, I was listening to a biographical message on Wilberforce last night as I was jogging in the neighborhood. I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for others. He had these two great things that he was spending his whole life on. Great goals. The abolition of slavery and the reformation of morals in England. And he fought tirelessly for that. And I love it. Don't you love the example of of Wilberforce? When he first, in 1787, threw down the gauntlet and said, this is what I'm going to give myself to, he was laughed out of the room. 
Do you know how embedded the slave trade was in the economy of England? Some, you'll hear some parallels here, maybe with some of the evils of our day. It would be 20 years before he could carry the House of Commons and House of Lords and putting abolition in the law of the, of the trade. That came in 1807 at 4 a.m. Hear, hear. Three hurrahs echoed, echoed. While the whole parliament is on its feet cheering Wilberforce after just, it was insane to think you were going to do that when he first started. And he fought for 20 years, and he's there, head bowed, tears streaming down his face. I hope some of the, the young people that are being raised up now just grab that vision and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, so please don't hear this as, you know, we're really not involved in politics. That, that's not the point. But do you know why he was so effective? It's because he, he was deeply embedded in the gospel. He knew his Bible. That's how he spent his vacations when they had time off. Nine and ten hours a day studying the Bible. That's how he was so persevering and enduring. And so he fought until his death 26 years later, 1833. Listen to this. Only three days before he died, slavery itself was outlawed in British colonies. 20 years for the trade to be abolished. Another 26, three days before he died, slavery abolished. <gasps> Can you imagine? Where is that kind of long-term, I mean, there's talk about how he just, he got more vigorous with blows. He just kept fighting. So may his tribe increase. May the Lord raise up. But you know what? If I were to just do this rah-rah Wilberforce thing here, and say, that's how you do it. The mothers of small children are going to despair. Actually, they're probably going to be wiser than that. They're going to say, that's hyperbole. I'm not William Wilberforce. I've got diapers to change and a lot of laundry to deal with. I'm just using mothers as one example. Okay? Very few will be Wilberforce. But you know what? The steady, seek first the kingdom, citizenship in heaven, just soaking in that and living it out. The steady, seek first the kingdom, countercultural living in personal life and in work and family and church and neighborhood is more significant and influential than we almost ever give it credit for. So my aim this morning is not to answer every political engagement question, okay? I'd probably miss all the ones you're asking anyway, okay? The aim is to take our citizenship cues from the Bible. Let's really study and seek to live the implications of our heavenly citizenship. Let's really study and seek to live the implications of our earthly citizenship that our king of kings calls us to live. And if we're doing that, just steadily, steady as she goes, if we're doing that, we just might be better prepared to know what the personal application is on a host of political issues and questions of engagement and activism. And it will ensure that we spend our lives seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, so we should say, Lord, your kingdom come in us 
and through us until your kingdom comes. So your kingdom come in me. I can't, I can't spend all my time pointing the fingers at everybody demonizing this, that, and the other thing. I've got nooks and crannies that I am stiff-arming your, your rule. Regularly, every day I need to say, oh, I need to bow the knee to you, King Jesus. I want to submit to you. I want to completely yield to your kingship. Your kingdom come in me so that it can really come through me, however that looks. If that's changing diapers and raising kids and loving neighbors, so be it. If it's the next William Wilberforce in fighting against abortion or whatever else, so be it. Father, thank you again that we can call you Father. Thank you that our Father is the Father in heaven, that you are the sovereign King of the universe. And you have everything under control. You know the end from the beginning. And we can call you Father. Thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel that reconciles us to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and makes the Emperor of the universe our Father. Please orient us to the sweet centrality of being citizens of heaven forever and help us by your gospel, grace, and truth to be faithful, good, Christ-like citizens in the city of man. So may your kingdom come in us and through us until it comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. May the grace of King Jesus be with you all. You're dismissed.